I'd like us to begin by trying to overcome our ideas and see history for what it is. I think this is the key point. So, so much of what we understand about history or ideas about history aren't just bound up in the evidence of that history, but also in our emotions. We form an emotional attachment to moments in history, to narratives in history, to people in history, and those emotional narratives then bind us to an idea about history that may not be supported by evidence. And then we look for the evidence that supports our narrative rather than allowing the evidence to drive our narrative. I think all people in some ways are guilty of that. So I ought to come up and tell you honestly what my bias was. My bias was that I was coming from a post-colonial perspective. Uh, I started out by thinking that the further back you went in history, the more discrimination the people of African descent would be suffering. I was taught by teachers who were also post-colonialists and said things such as that the British slave trade began in the 16th century, that the Crusades were racially um, organised, and that people uh, in the medieval and the early modern period had a very negative idea about blackness and about Africans. I grew up reading Shakespeare and believed that the ideas in Shakespeare, um, those ideas could be looked for a post-colonial lens and that they explained away early modern prejudice or in fact even earlier prejudice. I had read The Song of Roland. This is a song talking about the Moorish invasion of France and thought that it was symptomatic of racism not only in Europe but in England too. So I came from a post-colonial perspective, a post-colonial perspective that backdated racism and looked for the early modern period and the medieval period to be the source of that racism. But the evidence that I discovered made me question whether such an idea, whether such a notion had validity. So I'd like us to begin by uh, looking at um, us in modernity, because I think modernity is a key point. And if we can deconstruct our ideas about the present, then we're in a better position to deconstruct our ideas about the past. This is a picture of the present reigning monarch of this country, Elizabeth II. She is the longest reigning monarch of this country. She is now the longest reigning monarch of this country. And of course, this image, this photograph of her is also a photograph of her age, the second Elizabethan age. But I hope that when we look at this uh, picture, we don't think that this picture is the definitive picture of the Elizabethan age, because this is an age in which many different things have happened. An age in which um, uh, this country lost its empire, gaining it, an age in which um, this country had to come to terms with the fact of being ethnically diverse. An age when this country had to come to terms with its colonial past. It's a society in which there is considerable ethnic diversity. From the north to the south, from the east to the west. And yet if you looked at this picture, you might come out with a definitive mono-ethnic perspective 
of British society. A monoethnic perspective that doesn't actually reflect the society of which she is a monarch of. So when we see this picture, we need context. We need context of the ordinary people. More often than not, when we look at history, we don't look at ordinary people. We look at the rich, the powerful, the successful. Often we actually look at those people who are able to murder and kill lots of people. They get their message in history really strong and they have footnotes to support their presence, their existence. But the ordinary people who are often destroyed by their activities don't and aren't often recorded. So these sorts of images of monarchs are the paramount images that we see. But they are not entirely reflective of the people who lived in England any more than this picture is the definitive representation of the people that live in modern Britain. We might have that idea always in the paramount part of our minds. So that when we see the images of monarchs, we don't take them to be the mono-ethnic representation of this society, but the images instead of the people that ruled, not the people that were in those societies. So this is a uh, early modern uh, map of England. Uh, note the phraseology that I use here, England and not Britain, since Britain is only a modern creation since 1707. Scotland remained an independent country even while James I of England, James VI of Scotland, was ruling England and Scotland, it was still an independent country until Queen Anne. Queen Anne was the first monarch of Britain within a political state. Now, the political state of England, uh, very importantly, included, during the Tudor period, Wales, because the Tudor people, the Tudor family, were Welsh. The actual name Tudor is a Welsh name. It isn't an English name. And this England, the England of the medieval period, medieval period being from the 11th century to about 1485, and the early medieval period being from the 5th century, from the decline of the Western Roman Empire, when the Western Roman Empire was ceased to be recognised by Byzantium, the Eastern Roman Empire, in 476. So from 476 to the 11th century is often called the early medieval period. The later medieval period is described as being from the 11th century, from 1066, if you're living in England, to 1485. And the early modern period and the beginning of the Tudor period is described from 1485 up until 1603. And then the early modern period continues to the Stuarts from 1603 all the way into the 18th century. Today, we will be focusing on the 11th century up until the 16th century, about 500 year period. So that is the medieval and the Middle Ages, as well as the beginning of the early modern period, um, the Tudor period. This is a period of history in which there is considerable confusion in understanding. It is a period of history often written about by historians and writers, and it is a period in history in which modern people that live in Britain take their ideas of identity from 
It is the period in history where people say that English identity was fashioned. And it is also a period in history where people say that English nationalism was fashioned. And British nationalism too. It is a period in history in which there are considerable myths written about it. And that the reality of English and later British society is not often known, understood or talked about. So these are the um, uh, usual suspects, as it were, um, of the latter part of the period that we are talking about and somewhat of the earlier part of the period that we are talking about. Uh, the medieval English history is peppered by kings and queens. People like William I, uh, the first monarch um, to rule from 1066, who inherited his throne through conquest and defeating the Anglo-Saxon king, um, Howard Goodwinson, at the Battle of Hastings, um, and then went on in the north to drive out um, uh, pretenders to the English throne and to establish an Norman and Anglo-Norman hegemony that lasted effectively for the next four or five hundred years. Somewhat like that. There's actually more complicated than that, as we'll come to see. Within that period, the people who ruled in England, certainly for the first 300 years, claimed their right to rule by not being English. Yes, I didn't misspeak. These people claimed their right to rule by not being English. They claimed a Norman, a French ancestry, in fact, almost any ancestry except for being English, now, this was despite the fact that a good proportion of them, although not all of them, were English-born. Some of them clearly weren't, but some of them clearly were. But that wasn't the reason why they held their position in England. They held their position in England because they weren't English in ancestry, because they could claim heritage from William, William I. It is that blood, that foreign blood, that made English kings. This is very important for our idea of ideas of identity. This notion of foreign blood, of Norman blood making you noble, wasn't just a question of the kings. It was also a question of the higher nobility. Following the revolt of Herod the Wake, Anglo-Saxon nobility was rooted out, root and branch, from the English um, aristocracy. A Norman aristocracy was put in place. Now, this Norman aristocracy was colloquially Norman, since it also included people from other parts of France and even some from what is now northern Spain and from the eastern part of, uh, sorry, from the western part of what is now modern-day Germany or Germania. So, these European aristocrats, or should I say European soldiers and merchants made into aristocrats in England, became an Anglo-Norman aristocracy. An Anglo-Norman aristocracy that perhaps in some cases was born in England, but had its position on the basis of being not from an Anglo-Saxon, not from 
inverted commas, an English heritage. And it is precisely this foreign heritage that gave them the authority to have land, to have estates, to be tenants-in-chief, to be at the top of that feudal system. It is a distinctly non-English hegemony. Okay, this continued because the blood of the Plantagenets, monarchs like Edward I and Edward III, um, continued to be the yardstick by which monarchs chose, were chosen and the yardstick by which monarchs were able to assert their power and the authority. The Tudors and the Stuarts held their position on the basis that they had blood that came from the Plantagenets. These foreign-born and foreign um, uh, uh, people with foreign heritage from what is now modern-day France and other parts of Europe. With that, the infusion of Welsh blood, um, Danish blood, if, you're, if, you, if you were the Stuarts, makes this noble lineage that was ruling England only nominally Anglo, only nominally English. And though they would definitely make large and um, uh, uh, vituperative statements about being monarchs of England, what legitimised their blood was the non-English aspect of it. Okay, so this is important for our understanding. Um, so even when we read about a sort of proto-English nationalism being espoused by monarchs such as Edward I and Edward III, we see in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, etc. We need to take that with a pinch of salt. Since the people are writing in Latin and French and very little in English, the people are claiming an aristocracy, a bloodline that is not English, that they draw inspiration from ideas which are outside of England. So this is only a very colloquially called Anglo-Norman aristocracy. It's mostly a foreign um, uh, uh, group of people with foreign ancestry who are ruling in England and even their descendants are claiming that authority by claiming that foreign blood. Now, I've been talking about ethnicity in its wider terms, but what about people of colour? What about people of African or Asian descent? Well, many historians say, believe and write that people of African descent would not be present um, at all in medieval England. That's from the 11th century to 1485. Others claim that people of African descent in medieval or early modern England would be extraordinarily rare. Or through the myopia of using automatic enslavement as the measure of African status outside of the continent of Africa, they will presume that the people of African descent present in medieval or early modern England were automatically enslaved, automatically treated as less than, automatically the stranger, the other. We have lots of books. People have written there, made their whole career on describing automatically people of colour in English society as the other, the stranger, etc. 
or power to them. I question such automatic rendering. Yeah. So, Peter Fryer uh, wrote a book, a um, very interesting book, called Staying Power. Uh, and in that book, he described Africans in medieval or Tudor England as being strolling players, isolated, strange, and transient, are the terms that he uses. He's implying that the people of African descent who were present in England before the 17th century are so strange, so transient, and so isolated that they can't actually be given an historical description that explains their identity, their presence, their status, and their origins. Other authors, such as Kim Hall in Things of Darkness, an interesting book in many ways, however, repeats the same notion that Africans in Tudor society are too accidental and solitary to be given an historical statistic. Too accidental and solitary. I don't see how anybody's presence anywhere can be accidental unless, it, you know, if you're there, it's not necessarily, I mean, you can get lost, like Christopher Columbus, but the people that get lost don't tend to be called accidental, even though they are. Um, so I think it is rather presumptuous to presume that people of African descent would automatically be accidental and solitary, automatically individual, and automatically not be in any position, either in terms of size, numbers, position, or effectiveness within the narrative they play within English society, to be given an historical statistic. It's actually, I'm afraid, a kind of lazy scholarship to presume that. But it's a kind of lazy scholarship that's followed by others. Nabal Matar, in a book that is interesting in many ways, called Islam in Britain, um, said that the likelihood in Tudor or Stuart Britain of an Englishman or Scotsman meeting a Muslim were higher than that of meeting a sub-Saharan African. Now, I know it's sometimes difficult when you take phrases out of context. And these three authors that I've just described, their books are worthy of your analysis in other ways. However, when they come to talk about Africans in medieval or early modern society, they are symptomatic of a kind of historical laziness that doesn't just permeate the works that I've been describing, but permeates the whole academy. The whole academy, be it in Britain or America, is infused with this laziness. Kenneth Little, in a book, uh, 1948, um, um, called Negroes in Britain, doubts if the black man, whether of African or East Indian origin, was a familiar figure in England until well on in the 16th century, except as a chance visitor. We've got this same accidental thing going on here. Yeah? Or when imported. In other words, Little is implying that these people were slaves, and it is only slavery and the inscription of slavery which is capable of defining Africans and giving them meaning within medieval or early modern English society. In other words, we need slavery 
to be the reference point to explain or to give significance to people of African descent in medieval early modern society. That is reductionist, I would suggest. Um, so what about the um, medieval Middle Ages or the Middle Ages medieval period? Of course, it's a moment in time that's artificial. And it's a moment in time uh, where people choose the ancestors that they wish to emphasize. I mean, within all families, um, even with my own, uh, I will choose to emphasize those members of the family that I want to be associated with. I will have uncles and aunts that I may not speak about too often because I'm not so close to them. I will claim my lineage by those members of my family that I wish to claim. But I know that my family is extended. And my extended family includes lots of people that I may not wish to claim, but they're still part of my family. This country has an extended family. Its extended family goes beyond Anglo-Saxons, Celts, Normans. These terms even themselves are colloquial and generic. They don't necessarily describe a specific ethnicity in the way in which people often think that they do. But this country has other ancestors. It may be that some people who may classify themselves as white and English would like to think that those other ancestors are the Vikings, the Danish uh, raiders. But evidence from archaeology, from DNA, from investigation, again and again has shown that yes, whilst there were people that arrived from the 7th century, perhaps even before, up until the 12th century, and even formed a dominant group in certain parts of the aristocracy of England between the 7th and the 12th century, they never formed a dominant majority population within English society. And very, very, very few people in modern English society can actually trace their roots to people who arrived from those regions at that time and claim therefore a Danish or Viking ancestry. However, far more likely, far more likely when people do their DNA, DNA tests is for them to find that they have an African ancestor, not six, seven million years ago, you know, David Leakey and all of that stuff, you know, the out of Africa theory. I'm not talking about six or seven million years ago. I'm talking within the last four or five hundred years. And we're going to explain why those African ancestors are in English family trees. Because they are part of England's extended family and have been part of England's extended family for at least 2,000 years. So there are respectable ancestors and there are unrespectable ancestors, but they're all ancestors. The Blackamoors, the Tawnees, the Fours, the Egyptians, all these people and when I say Egyptians, I'm not talking about the ancient Egyptians, I'm talking about the Egyptians of early modern society, are all part of the medieval and early modern societies. The Saracens, who are found in English records, they are as much a part of the English extended family 
as the Vikings, the Normans, and the Anglo-Saxons are, just that they're not so respectable. So the way that we may delineate those members within our family tree, within England's history, that we don't want to claim, we may call them the other, the stranger, the foreigner, the immigrant, Johnny come lately, or we might just dismiss them as being enslaved, as some of those previous authors did. Now, the reason why they do that is because there is a separate form of historiography that relates to the other, the stranger, the foreigner, the immigrant, and Johnny come lately. This separate form of historiography separates these people classified as such from the mainstream narrative of these given countries. So it's a way, about, way of talking about a country's narrative or story and excluding the other, the stranger, and the, and the rest as not part of the mainstream narrative. And that way you can get away with a kind of lazy historiography that is devoid of colour. It is a lazy narrative that focuses on the images of the monarchs that I showed you, on big stories, and then underwrites those stories with a monoethnicity imagined and then placed on those narratives. And any person of colour that you meet along England's journey from the 11th century to the 16th century, you can then dismiss each of those individuals, families, communities, marriages, baptisms, burials, and everything else, communities, you can dismiss them as narratives about the other, narratives about the stranger, narratives about the foreigner, narratives about the immigrant, and narratives about Johnny Come Lately, or narratives about enslaved people. And they never disrupt the mainstream narrative that you wish to promulgate. So, as I said, we need to set aside the, the monoethnicity placed on certain terminologies. Let's just take a few of these terms and, and explain why uh, these are not monoethnic terms in the way in which we might think. The term Celts, for example, uh, describes a range of people who inhabited Britannia and other parts of Europe from 850 BCE to about 450 CE and later on other parts of um, uh, Europe including Scotland, Wales and Ireland later than that date. It does not describe a specific culture or a specific language. And the people colloquially called Celts would not have described themselves in that way. They would have described themselves as the Iceni or the Brigantes or other terms, but not as Celts. This is a term colloquially given to them by their enemies. It does therefore not describe an ethnically, a mono-ethnically um, uh, circumscribed set of people. Since it applies to a range of different peoples who inhabited Europe from the, the Iberian Peninsula and even parts of North Africa into Central Europe, including parts of France, 
and, to the, um, and parts of Italy and, of course, Britannia. These were a diverse group of people who are described in different ways by the different writers that saw them. Tacitus describes them in different ways. And Julius Caesar describes them in different ways. The writers employed by Claudius um, and Caligula describe the people that they met in different ways. Some of them describe them colloquially in a more generic term, um, uh, as having blonde hair and blue eyes. Others are described as being darker in complexion. Yes, and being menelated. All of these descriptions are possible since these people are diverse. Let's move on um, from the Vikings to Anglo-Saxon. Now, this is a term that has become quite a popular term that attempts to describe the dominant population in England um, during the 7th um, all the way through to about the 11th or the 12th century. Itself is a generic term describing a range of different Germanic peoples, including Angles, Saxons, Jutes, Visigoths, uh, Vandals, um, and others. These different sets of peoples, at different moments in English history, form parts of the strata of the established aristocracy uh, from sort of the 5th century onwards. There is a debate on whether they disrupted the ethnicity of English society in the way in which is often claimed. And it is, there are two schools of thought. One is that there was a mass invasion of these peoples and they uprooted the established people who were here, the Celtic people. Another school of thought is that they uprooted members of the aristocratic branch of the Celtic um, uh, fraternity and established themselves as the Anglo-Saxon ruling elite. Another argument um, is that the Celtic um, uh, population um, mixed and commingled with these Germanic invaders. But the point is that neither term, be it Celtic or Anglo-Saxon, is monoethnic. Neither of these terms describe a skin colour. None of these terms describe a hair colour. None of these terms describe an eye colour. Good, let's move on. So the, from the 11th century um, uh, to the 15th century, an Anglo-Norman hegemony uh, was established. Um, this Anglo-Saxon Oh, sorry, this Anglo-Norman hegemony was predicated on the basis of being able to draw your blood, draw your aristocratic blood from William the Conqueror. It later became your capacity to draw your blood from the Plantagenet line, um, either Henry II or Edward I, depending on how uh, forward you're going in history. It was never based on skin colour or hair texture. So England didn't develop a racialized perspective, a kind of racialized perspective that is now present, either as an undercurrent or an overt current, within modern English thought, did not develop in the medieval period. 
nor did I, would I suggest did it develop in the early part of the early modern period. That is firmly a feature of the end of the period of time in which we're talking about and the beginning of the modern age, despite the fact that people wishing to blame medieval England or early modern England um, for all of modern day racism. Unfortunately, so much of modern racism is in fact down to us and the science of race, biological determinism, um, uh, John Frederick Blumenbach, Carl Linnaeus. These are 18th, 19th century writers. Perhaps Francis Bernier at the end of the 17th century. It's not William the Conqueror. It's not Henry II. It's not Edward I. It's not Edward III. It's not Henry VI. It's not Henry VII. And it's not even Queen Elizabeth or Henry VIII. It's actually us. <laughs> uh, the modern people. So... Within um, the uh, period of time that we're talking about, people of African descent, people of colour, were part of medieval and early modern English society. And these people were called Moors, Garamantes, uh, Barbaries. Um, later, but from the influence of the Spanish, they were called Negroes uh, or Nigar from the Latin word black. But these terms are later terms. The early terms, such as Saracen, which was a generic term, a term capable of describing lots of people, including Africans. An example, Bartholomew in 13th century Nottingham is on the run. He has escaped from his employer, Roger de Linton, and he is on the run. He has broken his bond, which meant that in this case, this particular person may have been enslaved at some point, or may indeed be a slave nominally at some point. And he's on the run in Nottingham in the 13th century. Bartholomew is described and called a Saracen in the pipe rolls in which he appears. And he is also described as a blackamoor. He's described as a blackamoor twice and a Saracen once. The term Saracen here is a generic term to describe the fact that in this case, Bartholomew is probably not a Christian. So this term Saracen is capable of describing in this case, a blackamoor, but also other people from Asia Minor and other places too. So, when we see references in English records, we should not dismiss the term Saracen as only applying to Salakuddin or people from Asia Minor, since the term was capable of describing Africans as well as it did with Bartholomew on the run in 13th century England. It, this term Saracen also described people of African descent, such as the man buried in Ipswich, in the Greyfriars Cemetery, also in the 13th century. This African man, um, that considerable research has been done on his DNA, etc., probably hailed either from North Africa or the Iberian Peninsula. These are places that from the 7th century 
all the way through to the 16th century had a significant presence of people of colour from North and West Africa and Asia Minor. Some of these people were colloquially called Moors and also colloquially called Saracens. The man buried in the Ipswich Cemetery, whose bones we have now dug up and investigated, hailed from one of these regions and was probably employed in the Greyfriars Cemetery in which he was buried. Other people of African descent present in England include those described by Richard Devizes uh, in his text, satirically. Richard Devizes goes further than the few records that we have definitely, categorically said these people of African descent. He goes further. Richard Devizes actually says it with a satirical note that the people of African descent make up a significant presence of the people of other nations present inside the capital of the city of London. And he also satirically says that if you're a traveller coming to England, pass through London quickly because it's full of tribes of all nations, including the Gadamantes, including the people of African descent, the people of Moorish descent. Now, this is not entirely surprising uh, that we should find not only records of people of African descent during the medieval period, but that we also should find images of people of African descent present in England and in other parts of Europe. This is because from the 8th century, Gibral al-Tariq, that the Rock of Gibraltar is named after, arrived in 711 on the Iberian shore with an army of people, predominantly of whom were of North and West African ancestry. Only a minority were actually from Asia Minor. Gibral al-Tariq began a series of incursions, followed up by other people from North, West Africa and from Asia Minor. These incursions pushed all the way up through the Iberian Peninsula. At one point, during the early part of the 8th or 9th century, the Moorish population had 90% of Spain and Portugal under their authority. Also in the 8th century, this Moorish, these Moorish sets of peoples invaded what is modern-day France, settled down in Picardy, settled, settled down in the Aquitaine, reached as far as Le Mans, settled in parts of Normandy. A reconquista, beginning in the 8th century, sought to drive out these Moorish populations. And we know that much of, these, um, uh, uh, much of this reconquista has now been glamorised in mythology. We read about it in the Song of Roland, which is unequivocal absolutely unequivocal in describing the Moorish people who had invaded France as being people of African descent. Unequivocal. And though we may um, smart at it with a kind of political correctness and argue with our politically correct woke 21st century minds about the way in which these people are described, but I say actually thank goodness that these terms are so explicit because it helps to disrupt the emotional narrative that we might have in describing the Moorish people as not being capable of people of being people of African descent. 
So the mythology of the Song of Roland, the mythology of the matter of France, is quite clear that the Moorish population are dark-skinned people, or at least the dark-skinned people of African descent, make up a significant part of the Moorish population. Here shown in uh, uh, this um, 8th century image. These people are also depicted in other images that crisscross around Europe and describe uh, these Moorish people as warriors, um, warlords, servants, friends and neighbours. We mustn't think that the conflicts of the Moorish population led to a racialized perspective being developed in all parts of Europe, certainly in some parts of Europe, even as early as the 8th or 9th century, there is an ethnic chauvinism and an anti-blackness that is present in some of those pieces of work written about those Moorish people. But this anti-blackness and anti-Africanness is not predicated on the same kinds of ideas that anti-blackness and anti-Africanness and modern-day racism is predicated. And we should stop saying that it was, because it's not predicated on the same ideas. It's predicated on the basis of these people being conquerors, warriors and warlords in Europe not on the basis of them being automatically enslaved, inferior, etc. So, uh, this is a uh, wonderful um, um, image uh, from 14th century uh, uh, German um, uh, artwork and manuscript. Uh, it is actually quite much larger than that. And it describes, in a visual way, some of the very events that I've been talking about. We should note that these writers, thank goodness, without a shred of political correctness, describe and depict the Moorish populations of early modern Europe as unequivocally people of, of dark-skinned African uh, descent, with red tongues. Yes, with red tongues. Of course, these Moorish populations, these people of African descent, could exist in English society because England had not developed in the medieval period a racialised perspective in the same way as it later developed a racialised perspective. Having said that, England was of course being influenced by some ideas arising from other parts of Europe which did have an ethnic chauvinism or, in some cases, a prototype of ethnology which was anti-black and anti-African, especially in the Iberian Peninsula. In Aragon, as the last Moorish stronghold of Granada was defeated in 1492, and the Moorish lands were sequestrated, and Spain and Portugal were made into unitary states, the Moorish population continued throughout the Iberian Peninsula, contrary to what some people may say, up until 1632, when 300,000 were expelled by Philip III. Between that period of time, 1632 to 1492, Aragon took on the imagery and the symbology of the Moors as a representation and a prototype of their coat of arms. Of course, Catherine of Aragon, when she arrived here in 1502, brought that symbology with her. But it's not just the symbology that she brought. 
She brought with her Moorish people. They came with her. They were part of her entourage. Good. Um, this is an image of um, many of the things that we've already been speaking about um, in terms of the uh, expanse of the Moorish empires um, by the ninth century and, of course, the decline. Now, into the early modern period, a diverse group of people of African descent persisted. They persisted in early modern Europe and they persisted in England. In places such as Portugal, in Lisbon, for example, in Portugal, recent um, studies have said that at least 10% of the population in Lisbon was of African descent. 10%. One in 10. These people are depicted in the early modern artwork of the time. This is a wonderful um, um, uh, painting, um, wonderful um, uh, tapestry that depicts, obviously, as you can see, a woman of African descent in traditional African style, wearing a pot on her head, and an African man, I think, being taken away by the constables. We don't know for quite what reason. Uh, this is from an um, artist unknown, from the King's um, Square, the um, King's Fountain in Lisbon, 1570 to 1580. We should not, with a lazy historiography, presume that every African that is within that image is a recent arrival or a slave. It's lazy. In particular, it's lazy for this reason. This um, wonderful image uh, is of an African man um, mounted upon a horse. Uh, he, he's a knight. The sign and signal here is the Order of Santiago. Ironically, um, Santiago was also known as the killer of Moors, ironically. But the Order of Santiago was the most prestigious order within Iberian society. To be a member of the order, first of all, you had to be a Christian, and your entire lineage had to be Christians. You had to be capable of financially maintaining yourself without recourse to public funds. You had to be literate, a sponsor of the arts, and none of your lineage, none of your lineage could be inferior or of an enslaved nature. In other words, they would trace as far back as they possibly could your lineage. And therefore, if you were part of the order, you were part of a very, very elite group of people. This African man in Lisbon is part of that elite order, proving the very point that I was saying that we do this population and, in fact, European history a disservice when we just presume enslavement automatically. Now, this is um, uh, a wonderful um, 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 illustration from the Nuremberg Carnival book, uh, created 1590 to 1620. The Nuremberg uh, events, contrary to what our prescriptive perspective may be on it, uh, were events organised by the Habsburgs to celebrate the power of the Habsburg Empire. In these events, people of African descent were a continuous representation and were continuously represented 
And this was part of a late medieval, early modern tradition that extended throughout Europe and into England. In Scotland, for example, King James IV of Scotland put on events known as the Romance of the Black Lady by um, the uh, uh, Wild or Black Knight, where King James IV dressed up in black armour as an archetype of the Moorish knights and then serenaded two women of African descent, one called Anne Moore and one called Margaret, um, who were people obtained, probably by illegal means, by Andrew Barton of Overbarton. These two women of African descent were serenaded as a representation of a kind of beauty. A kind of beauty that recognised blackness as having the potential to be another kind of standard of beauty. This standard was present inside early modern and medieval ideas about blackness and Africans. And uh, we have actually forgotten um, what, what it is about. And it is about the completeness of blackness, the, the perfection of blackness. And early modern writers talk about it. Even Shakespeare talks about it. Um, this, of course, is an image of um, John Blank uh, from the Westminster Tournament Royal. John Blank is depicted twice on the Westminster Tournament Royal of 1511, um, which was created for the celebration of the birth of the son of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. It is entirely natural, bearing in mind the history that I've just been talking about, for John Blank to appear here. John Blank was continuing a European tradition where Africans were part and parcel of celebrations within European society. His position there is not an anomaly. It is part of a European tradition of the late medieval, early modern period. Uh, this is the payment to John Blank. And if you look very carefully at the top, it says, item to John Blank, the black trumpeteer. Thank goodness for lack of 16th century political correctness. Just to make it unequivocal that it is the payment to the person that we've just been talking about. Uh, this is a uh, wonderful uh, painting. Um, uh, daughter of Florence Pollitt and Thomas Smythe um, by um, Gilbert Jackson. I don't know the name of the African youth. I don't know the name. And we don't know the actual title of the painting, which is a shame. For a long time, I wondered what was going on here. You probably can't see the bottom of the painting. But in this painting, this young African man is offering uh, to um, Florence Pollitt, it appears, some chicks, some young birds in a nest. It is a symbol of fertility, and it is extraordinarily furtive. It is furtive. And we might now even consider it to be rather risque. He is smiling and she is looking coyly at us while she accepts the birds. Of course, this is, it has some overtones here, representative overtones. But why does it exist? Why is this kind of familiarity being depicted? Because it represents something about the early modern English society that it comes from. An early modern English society in which people of African descent were part and parcel of English society. We now have their burials, their baptisms, their marriages. We know 
that people of African descent married white English people. We don't just need George Best's unequivocal statement about it. We have the baptisms and the burials that give absolute evidence of, this, of these people's presence and their existence from the 16th century onwards. We have the records. And the only reason why we don't have the records of the period before is because record keeping didn't reference them in that way. So um, this sort of um, brings us to our conclusion. Um, we should be careful in any narrative about English history that is reductionist and reduces English history to mono-ethnic platitudes. We should also be careful in overstating that which can't be proved. If we look carefully at what I've said today, I've not spoken about Edward the Black Prince, because I think the jury's still out. I've not spoken about um, uh, Queen Philippa of Hainault, because I still think the jury is out. I've spoken about that which can be proved with evidence. I've spoken about Bartholomew, I've spoken about um, the Ipswich man, I've spoken about Richard Devizes, um, and I've spoken about those people that can be proved. I've spoken about the Africans in the late medieval period and the early modern period. I haven't spoken about Mary and Moriana in 1470, present in the English courts um, and fighting for her status, but she exists. She's tangible. So I've been very careful in what I'm willing to state unequivocally. And this is very, very important because there's a pushback. The pushback is that this is all wokeism. Uh, this is all political correctness. This is all politically driven. Unfortunately, for those who, people who say that, it's not wokeism. It's not political correctness. I said to you that I came to this study this field of research with a perspective. The perspective that I had is not the perspective that I've given to you today. The perspective that I've given you today, I have been dragged to by John Blank. John Blank drove me there. Bartholomew drove me there. Yeah, Gibral Al-Tariq drove me there. Yeah, I've had to change my perspective. Because the evidence points to a far more complicated set of relationships and status over a 600-year period. A far more complicated and, in fact, interesting narrative than most people have hitherto postulated. And it is a narrative that is entirely worthy of investigation. Thank you.